Amen. Well, you may have a seat. Good morning. My name is Matt, one of the pastors here at Vertical. It's a pleasure to see you. And so if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, uh, start turning with me to the book of Exodus chapter 3 this morning as we continue in our God Is series, a study through uh, the magnificent, incommunicable attributes of God. And so if you've been with us the past few weeks, uh, you likely remember a few of the high points that we've discussed, and I just want to bring some of those back to our attention this morning. Some of those high points are things like God's infinity, or how about this, God's incomprehensibility, and then two weeks ago, an attribute that is deeply tied to our study this morning, the attribute of God's self-existence. Now, before we dive in this morning, I want to briefly Help us recall some of these terms that we've defined throughout the past few weeks, starting with uh, the one that's obvious, incommunicable. We are studying the incommunicable attributes of God. Well, incommunicable is simply this. These are the attributes of God that are exclusive to God. And what I mean by that is, as finite beings, God is infinite. We are not. As comprehensible beings, beings with physical attributes that only go so far before they don't, beings that can be fully known, we are comprehensible, God is not. And then secondly, two weeks ago, we were introduced to this word, aseity. And aseity is simply this, God is independently self-existent. And so if God's self-existence is part one of our study of God's aseity, then part two and our fourth attribute that we get to study through this morning is God's self-sufficiency. God is self-sufficient. He's the source of all things. God is the one who originated all things. And he's the one who is not only self-sustaining, but he is sustaining everything that is. And so where we're ultimately heading this morning is a realization that if God is exclusively self-existent and self-sufficient, then everything else is by definition dependently insufficient in its existence. And the world and everything in it is in desperate need. Now, at first, that may sound like bad news, and indeed it would be if it stopped there. But as we'll ultimately see this morning, there is hope for our world's devastating deficiencies. Because to those who are in Christ, who know that even though everything in this world, you, me, this church, creation itself, is deficient... We trust the promise that Jesus Christ has and will provide everything we need in his all-sufficient grace. And so that's where we're heading this morning, but we have some, different, uh, some distance to cover before we arrive. So if you have your Bibles and you're there with me in Exodus chapter 3, let me introduce us to our text this morning and one of the most audacious statements and claims in all of history. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 14 as we begin to understand the implications of God's self-sufficiency and our deficiency. So Exodus chapter 3, pick up with me in verse 14, and I'll read 14 and 15. 
God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. And so we just dropped into the opening scenes of one of the uh, most amazing stories of salvation in history, the salvation of the Israelite people from slavery in Egypt. Moses, he's an Israelite. He was born uh, and then was raised in Pharaoh's household of all places, has already tried to do what God set him apart to do, to, to pull and draw and lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. He already tried, and he came up insufficiently short. Moses is insufficient. He could not do it on his own. Throughout the previous pages in our Bibles, we find the short and unsuccessful story of Moses trying to free the people of Israel his own way. And due to his deficiency, he fails. An Egyptian ends up dead. Moses then flees for his life, and he's happy to go to shepherd training school somewhere out in the wilderness. That is until God decides it's time to bring him back to Egypt to do things God's way. And so God speaks to Moses through a burning bush, um, apparently FaceTime wasn't a thing yet. I think Steve Jobs was still working on that. So we've got a burning bush. Moses is terrified, obviously, and has some hesitations about his personal abilities to complete the task that God has set before him. And so hesitantly, Moses says in verse 12, my paraphrase, who the heck am I? (laughs) Who am I to do this? Don't you know I already tried and failed? And God essentially answers, Moses, it doesn't matter who you are. What matters is who I am because I am who I am. And so here, we're on the cusp of one of the greatest stories of deliverance in history. And God makes a divine mic drop. One of the most provocative and audacious statements that has challenged humanity for centuries. I am who I am. And so we'll circle back to these important five words in just a moment. Before we do, I want to complete the picture that we see here and we're observing in these two verses. First, notice God's historical language at the beginning of verse 15. He says, Say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, The God of Abraham, a real person with a real story. The God of Isaac, a real person with a real story. And the God of Jacob, a real person with a real story, has sent me to you. So God is a God of self-definition. I am who I am. But God is also a God of self-explanation. Notice how God doesn't leave his name hanging there like some sort of theoretical being who's beyond our imagination. Rather, he plants himself firmly in the family tree as a God who is known among the forefathers of this man, Moses, who is real and who has really been on display throughout the pages of history. And so by way of reminder, God gives Moses and the people of Israel something tangible and something memorable. So God is a God who sustains in tangible and memorable ways. 
We're not talking about a God who shows up just when it's convenient. No, no, no. God is the God who provided Abraham an offspring when his wife was way too old to have kids. God is a God who gave Abraham a covenant and made it and sustained it. God is the God who provided a substitute for Isaac's life when he was laying on the altar about to be slaughtered. And God is the God who gave Jacob a dream and made him the father of many nations. And so not only is God a God of tangible and memorable ways, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, but he's also the God of all future generations. Look at verse 15, second half. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So from the advantage of where we sit today, several thousand years later, we can look back and we can see how God has sufficiently provided for his people. God provided a means of salvation for the people of Israel trapped in slavery in Egypt. He delivered them. God was sufficient to provide a remnant from where the perfect substitute Jesus Christ would come. And let's bring this personally to this room. God is sufficient to keep me, the one standing before you, from being a complete narcissistic person capable of the worst atrocities. And God is sufficient to give you life and breath and everything you have. That's the tangible, memorable God whom we serve. So God the sufficient, speaking to Moses the deficient, in five words, I am who I am, makes the case that his definition is himself inspired by no one. His character is steadfast, affected by nothing. His existence is eternal, relying on no sustenance. His plans are sure, contingent on no circumstances, and his promises are eternal, past, present, and forevermore. So God has been who God has been. God is who he is, and God will be who God will be. Nothing will change that. I am who I am. And so we're beginning to see the landscape here of God's self-sufficiency and the implications of our insufficiency. So the question has to be, what do we do when we recognize that God alone is sufficient and we are not? Well, hold on to that question and pick up with me in verse 16 as we see humanity's insufficiencies on display. Verse 16 through 22. So he continues and says, And go gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites to a land flowing of milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go 
unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do to it. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver, for gold, jewelry, clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. More and more I read this passage, the more and more I'm fascinated by the fantastic irony at play here. Think about it this way. We've got Moses, incapable in his own abilities, insufficient to get back into Egypt. And then we've got the Israelites, the Hebrews, insufficient in their own abilities to get out of Egypt. And then, to cap it all off and to continue this irony, we've got Egypt, the latest and greatest and best empire of the day, is about to get bested by the people that they've been enslaving for 400 years, which have made them so great. Listen, in God's self-sufficiency, he always provides a way. He always does. And sometimes it's actually kind of funny how he does it. So the Egyptians, they're great. They're wealthy. They're on top of the world. They've got the bling going on, right? You know what? Sometimes I find it laughable when I see the things that we humans call great. You know, we call things like cathedrals, coliseums, carvings. They're all great. You know the irony with it? They're all museums, rotting away, becoming dust. Egypt, Babylon, the Vatican, the Mona Lisa, all of our greatest and best attempts fall short. You know, this past week, it was a, kind of a sad week for me when Wednesday morning I saw the BBC notification that popped up, yes, BBC broke it before the NFL, that Tom Brady, the GOAT, my favorite quarterback, has retired after 23 seasons in the NFL. Now, you can love T12 or you can hate him. That's totally up to you. But you cannot deny that he has had a very successful career, right? However, we call him the GOAT, the greatest of all time. But in that phrase, there's something very fallible because, get this, all time has not yet concluded. And so, sure, Tom Brady may have been the best of the past, he probably was the best of his present, but his present is no longer our present because he retired yet again. And so the present, he's no longer the best. And it can guarantee you we don't know the future, so we don't know to claim that he's going to be the best of all time. So the only one who can make the goat claim about anyone is someone who has been existent in the past, through the present, and forevermore, and that greatness in itself is defined by that person as not Tom Brady. I hate to break it to you, but Tom Brady, seven Super Bowl rings, Super Bowls, NFL, every stadium, every football club, every castle, every cathedral, every coliseum, every carving will be forgotten. If you don't believe me, Isaiah makes a comment about another one of the goats of history, the ancient empire of Babylon and all of their idols and gods and territories. And to the pride of Babylon... Now, years in the past, it's now an ash heap of history. God says this, Isaiah 46, 9 through 10, I am God. There is no other. 
I am God. There is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things yet undone, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. And that's exactly what God is saying to Moses back in verse 14 as he defines himself in himself. I'm saying there's no other. God is exclusively God. He hasn't left the door open for humanity to define him. He's defined himself, and he's forever shut the door and being defined by defining himself as himself. God isn't up for debate. So I think at this point, we all understand that God is self-sufficient, and by implication that we are not. So what does this mean? Are we destined to the ash heaps of history, along with Egypt and Tom Brady and the Mona Lisa? Well, thankfully for us, for Moses, for God's people, the answer is a resounding no, because God is faithful to provide a path and provision for his people. Look with me at the latter part of verse 16 and the first part of verse 17. God says, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt. And you know something? Our situation, where each of you sits right now, is not all that different than the Israelites in Egypt. We've all been enslaved to a seemingly insurmountable foe. We've all been tied down by the very thing that promises to give us life. And in short... Our world is full of empty promises because our world, newsflash, is not self-sufficient. The only promise that you can fully rely on is a promise made by one who is reliant on nothing and is in himself capable of everything. I am who I am. Listen, God is not surprised by your current identity crisis. God is not taken back by the issue in your family or the issue at work. God is not offended that you're constantly looking for satisfaction in all the wrong places. God is not hurt that you're looking for something to define you. Because all of this, all of this worry, all of this fear, all of this lack of satisfaction is meant to lead you to the only true spring of eternal life in Christ Jesus. And listen, that is why we have been designed from the beginning in perfection to not be self-sufficient. God designed us to be in constant communion and fellowship with him. His self-sufficiency and our deficiency is a beautiful, intentional design. 
Because in this, we find complete satisfaction in Him and Him alone. You think about it, that's what truly defines Christianity against all other functional options to get to God. We call them religion. Our world's religions make little gods out of all of us. Christianity is the only one that says, no, you were designed to make God out of God. And this is why we are so desperate to find something sufficient to fill us. Why we're constantly looking for things to give us purpose and identity. Why we're constantly running to things that we do or possessions that we hold to define us rather than finding our identity and how God sees us. You know, if you think about it, we all do this, and I'll prove it to you. We typically, when we meet somebody new and we're introducing ourselves, we ask them, what do you do? Right? What do you do? Well, I'm a, you know, fill in the blank. I'm a First service, apparently, the only thing that came to my mind was Jedi. So I'm a Jedi, right? Uh, so what do you do? I'm, I'm a mom. I'm a, I'm a doctor. I'm an anesthesiologist, whatever it is. And we typically ask this because we're asking to find some definition of what this person does. And even if we were to stretch our minds and go a different direction that's uncomfortable and say, well, well what are you like? <laughs> Tell me what you're like. We're still going to say the same thing. I'm artistic, I'm funny, I'm the most humble person you're ever going to meet. If you don't believe me, you can just ask me. Um, those types of things, right? We all define ourselves by something because we're all seeking a satisfying identity that we haven't found yet. And listen, we're not even getting started into our culture's current craze of redefining those things that we once upon a time defined ourselves by. So in a world where definitions are changing rapidly, where new pronouns are being thrown around more common than insults at a Packers-Vikings game, God stands alone in his ability and his right to define himself as himself. And God alone can define you. God is exclusively God. There is no other. And I'm here to tell you this morning that if you're in Christ, you are exclusively his, and that's the best identity that you can cling to. So yes, you are completely insufficient by design, but the good news is that Christ is completely sufficient. And brothers, sisters, in a world where we constantly define ourselves by something we do, something that makes us feel valuable, something that we give effort to, something that we claim, we need to be reminded that there is only one title that can truly, sufficiently supply satisfaction. And here lies the application for us as we begin to see ourselves as incredibly deficient in light of God's self-sufficiency. Because this is ultimately going to take us one of two places. It can take us over here where we recognize our deficiency, which you do, and seek to find something that may replace that deficiency, something sufficient by redefining ourselves because we're unsatisfied with who we are. Or it will lead you over here where we recognize our deficiency and we lean into the only thing that is truly self-sufficient and his name is God. You know, I'm convinced now more than ever that our culture's current craze 
with topics such as gender dysphoria or redefining marriage or redefining when life begins. All of these issues are not a new type of craze, but simply another chapter in humanity's history-long story of trying to be like God in the ability to define ourselves. But here's the kicker, friends. We can sit comfortably in this room and be like, yeah, the world's got it messed up. They're in trouble. But the reality is the battle is right here. Because in this room, you're looking at one, we're surrounded by workaholics. People who think that through more effort, they can be more satisfied or satisfy more. We're in this room surrounded by people who disregard God's design for sexual intimacy within the covenant of marriage. We're in this room surrounded by people who have foul mouths and crass talk, which I find kind of hilarious that Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, right after saying, let there be no hint of sexual immorality among you, says, and let there be no crude talk or joking or a, a nasty humor, essentially. And I'm like, really, Paul? Those are the same things? Like, we're, couldn't you paragraph break that or something? This room is full of people who don't respect their parents, full of people who find their identity and their self-image and their Insta profiles. This room is full of people who think that we ourselves are sufficient in ourselves. And we prove this to ourselves daily as we neglect our moment-by-moment -moment desperate need of God and live our life as if life is about us rather than God. So, vertical church. If God is the only being in existence that is self-sufficient, meaning we are not self-sufficient, but we constantly proclaim our self-sufficiency through our lives by continuing to live without the sufficiency of Christ, then we have a massive artery block somewhere between here and here that's about to mess us up. And, you know, for those of us who recognize we're weak, but see our lack of sufficiency on full display day after day, not even that we're weak, guys. We're laying on the hospital bed on life support, needing to be ripped open to get this artery unclogged because something is truly, truly killing us, and we have no understanding of how to find joy. These tribulations from every side are caving in on us. You're, you're broken. You're looking for hope. You're trying to come up for air, and you're being swallowed and suffocated by the ever-pressing world around us. And so the question is, what are you going to do about this? What are you going to do? Well, as we begin to wrap up, I want to take you to a journey of a passage here in uh, 2 Corinthians, a few thousand years later, written by a guy named Paul. So join me in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 through 10, as Paul creates a very unique parallel to the New Testament as we discuss our insufficiencies. So in Christ, we are sufficient. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 through 10. But he said to me that my grace is sufficient. Oh, that's cool. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, 
I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness in the power of Christ, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with my weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So Paul. Paul was the guy that actually had the right to boast. <laughs> he had the pedigree. He had the following. This guy casts out demons, plants churches all over the known world. Listen, if there's anyone who can boast, it's Paul. Yet Paul had a weakness, a thorn in the flesh that he described is the very object that reminded him where true sufficiency came from. And even though Paul knew that all of his accomplishments, all of his titles, all of his righteousness was but filthy rags at the foot of the cross, Paul, of all people, needed to be consistently reminded that he was insufficient and that Christ was all-sufficient. And like Paul, we can lean into our weaknesses. Power of Christ stands strong. In our insufficiencies, God's grace is all-sufficient. This probably stands against most everything that you have been told in your life. But Christian maturity isn't brought about by independence. And growth isn't found in increased autonomy. Christian growth and sanctification are the process of learning to be increasingly dependent on Christ and on one another. You know, for most of my life, I thought that weaknesses and need were brought about by the fall in Genesis 3. I thought that my abilities, my failures, my lack of ability to do everything that I thought God needed from me, I thought that that was all a result of, of sin or laziness. I thought my need for identity was sinful. I thought my need for companionship was sinful. I thought my need for contentedness was a weakness. But I was wrong. You see, God created me needy and God created you needy that we may turn to the source of all that is needful and acknowledge our need and worship our Maker and our Savior. Let's pray.